Come on in, welcome to uh, Adult Sunday School. I found out last night by text message that today was my last Sunday for Adult Sunday School. So I thought I had next week too. But the children are going to sing for us next week and, and do entertaining things. And that will be much better than me. But as a result of finding out we only have one session together, I'm going to uh, smoosh things together, hopefully. That's a, yes, that's a technical term that professors use to uh, address the sin of falling behind in their lectures. Um, of course, we had no lecture plan to begin with, so I haven't really fallen behind in my defense. Uh, we didn't know where we were going uh, at the outset. Uh, in any case, we'll, uh, we'll try to put some, some, make some concluding sort of uh, final reflections uh, towards the end. But I want to pick up more or less where we left off last week. You'll recall we were looking at what Luther was doing when he was hiding in the Wartburg Castle, translating uh, the Bible from original manuscripts uh, into German. Not the first of its kind, but definitely the most popular. So there's Luther looking, working away in his study. That's the title page of the 1523, 1524 German New Testament uh, that, that, uh, that became so popular. And we even looked a little bit at the most important theme that Luther uh, identified in scriptures. The key to understanding and unlocking uh, the Bibles and seeing Christ in the Old and New Testament and to understand law and gospel. So Lucas Cranach had painted this large panel of law on that side, gospel on the other, um, you'll recall. Well, after making this panel painting, Cranach's uh, genius invention for, for the New Testament, now this may seem like not much of an invention because it's so common uh, and almost obvious. It's the part of the book that you just skip past. But Lucas Cranach uh, invented the title page, in essence. There were medieval title pages in books uh, that were quite extravagant and hand-painted, uh, but the early printing press did, never used title pages because they were very expensive. The whole point of using the printing press was to do something quickly and inexpensively. So you wouldn't commission uh, a piece of art uh, for, for a cheap, cheap publication. But Cranach designed... Uh, the title page, and, and made it quite artistic. Now, I don't know if you can tell, uh, looking at this, but these are all adaptations. These are this is the English Bible. That's a German New Testament and and uh, Latin New Testament. All three have adaptations of Cranach's long gospel painting built into the title page. Um, which is quite an ingenious way, if you think about it, to begin, to begin catechizing uh, from the first page of the scriptures. How do you understand? What are you reading? You turn to the title page. You're reading the Bible, and illustrated in the margins is the key to understanding scriptures, law and gospel. Well, Lutherans maintain, uh, we talked at one point about how to count the Ten Commandments and smooshing of the Ten Commandments together in the Lutheran view. The Lutherans continued on using 
uh, images uh, of Christ throughout. It's really the Calvinist tradition and some of the more radical traditions that, that moved away from that uh, appropriately. And so uh, Bibles, for instance, that were printed uh, for, for Reformed Christians, like the Geneva Bible, wouldn't have had uh, these sorts of images, although they did have uh, title pages and, and illustrations, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, that's framing and shaping the very first engagement with the vernacular scriptures. Uh, that was one of Cranach's genius inventions. Uh, but Cranach had uh, a few other inventions uh, as well, or insertions, I should say, into the New Testament. Um, turn to Revelation chapter 17, just briefly. Um, while you're turning there, Cranach's contribution to, the, to Luther's German New Testament uh, was not just the title page. He included uh, 21 illustrations of various passages in scriptures. Uh, one of the illustrations is asserted into the book of Revelation. So, did I say Revelation 17? I don't remember what chapter I said. Re Revelation chapter 17. Let me just read a few, book, uh, a few verses here. Then one of the seven angels uh, who, had the se uh, who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality uh, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. I could stop there for now. Well, how many of you read Latin? Okay, that's we're pretty, a pretty fair representation of the German peasants <laughs> from the 1520s. Well, uh, if you didn't read Latin, then you probably hadn't read much of the Bible yourself ever. Well, in 1521, 1523, imagine picking up Luther's German New Testament. You may not know Latin, but maybe you know a little German. And you're reading along in the book of Revelation, and you read that chapter, and then you come across this illustration right there that's John the book of Revelation chapter 17 through 19 and here's this illustration inserted into it of the passage that we just read many heads the harlot the prostitute sitting on on the beast etc And on her head is what? It's maybe a little hard to tell. The crown, but the crown is fashioned to look like the papal tiara. Right there in the book of Revelation, identifying the whore of Babylon and Revelation chapter 17 with the Pope. 
highly controversial, explosive. Uh, the next edition of, German's Luther, of, of Luther's German New Testament, uh, some of the German nobility complained so bitterly about this illustration that they tried to have it removed. And some versions of it actually just have a blank page where the illustration would have been because it was so controversial. Well, there are a lot of other illustrations like this that, that Cranach uh, inserted into the New Testament. But about 1522-1523, Luther and Cranach teamed up together to try to make an argument that the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, was the Antichrist. And in fact, they produced uh, a text pairing 13 different woodcuts together, comparing Christ and Antichrist. Uh, and I've brought some of them with you because they're, they're really quite interesting. Uh, that's another closer up image there. So 15, uh, 23, 24, the passion of Christ, passion of Christ and Antichrist. 13 paired images that Cranach came together, uh, put together. Luther and Philip Melanchthon wrote little captions for, comparing side by side uh, simple images from the New Testament with the Pope. Now, the genius thing about, about this uh, little booklet that they put together is it, it takes the Pope essentially as he presents himself to the world. It isn't necessarily uh, caricature example. They're fairly straightforward images of the Pope as he was you know, commonly seen in public places. And it takes images uh, of Christ, stories that were very well known from the Gospels. So here we have the triumphal entry. You have Jesus seated on a donkey going into the gate of Jerusalem. Going the opposite direction is the Pope seated on a sort of battle charger, right? The kind of horse that a knight would wear, arrayed in, in military splendor with, with an armed guard uh, of sorts. You have soldiers out in front. My pointer never works. I'm going to tell Bob to get a new pointer. <laughs> uh, well, in any case... Um, now, there's an image that everyone knows. Everyone who's been to church at Easter time, which is especially when medieval Christians would go, would go to church, would know the story of the triumphal entry. And so it's, it's, in a way, a kind of use of what we talked about a few weeks ago, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, a simple story from the, from the Gospels about Jesus humbly entering into Jerusalem compared with how the Pope presents himself with an armed military guard on a knight's charger, riding in glory and in splendor. It's the theology of the cross, in other words, versus the theology of glory. Another, another image here. Jesus cleansing uh, the temple with a scourge. And there are the money changers. The table is upset over here and they're being run out versus the Pope. There's the papal tiara again, by the way. 
not caricatured, but just presented as he is, selling indulgences, right? People are lining up, paying their money, there's a big stack of indulgences, and the Pope's handing them out. The Pope, in other words, is a kind of money changer who, who himself should be kicked out, right, of the, of the temple. Another one, we won't go through all of them. Uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, coming as a, as a servant, uh, both Christ himself serving us and also an example uh, of service, and the Pope having kings and noblemen and royalty kissing the Pope's feet. A pretty stark contrast between the two. But these, are, these are powerful images uh, that, that Luther and Cranach and Melanchthon put together. Uh, just one more here. Jesus being scourged, crown of thorns being placed on his head, mocked, and the Pope over here receiving the papal tiara, the three-layered papal tiara, receiving the adoration uh, of men, etc. Well, you get the point. Uh, it's a pretty vivid, dramatic contrast of, of Christ and Antichrist. And some of those illustrations, as I mentioned, uh, wound their, found their way into Luther's German, German New Testament. Uh, it maybe marks, you could say, a new period of, of German hostility towards the papacy, beyond even uh, the hostility that was generated by the indulgence controversy from 1517. The mid-1520s moving into the 1530s, a great deal of, uh, of Protestant skepticism uh, and hostility towards the Bishop uh, of Rome. Well, uh, Rome didn't take this lying down, you might imagine. Uh, in other words, Luther and Cranach uh, attacked the papacy itself in response to, uh, to, to Rome's excommunication. But Rome doesn't take this lying down. In fact, they commissioned um, a man, just a little white space, a man named Johannes Cochleus, uh, probably the most bitter and vicious propagandist uh, of the entire Reformation. Uh, a Catholic humanist from Mainz was specifically commissioned uh, by the Pope in the papacy to hound Luther. He followed Luther everywhere, constantly producing propaganda uh, pieces, sort of hit attacks, hit pieces. Uh, on Luther. Luther had gone after the papacy. The Pope commissioned Johannes Cochleus and others to just spread filth and lies about Luther. One of the most famous stories about, about that the Johannes Cochleus invented, just to give you a little flavor, um, he had a news report published about Luther uh, that was based allegedly on, on an eyewitness account of the story of, of, uh, of Luther's birth. Now you remember, this is quite a sort of superstitious, um, magical world in some respects that medieval people lived in. Well, the story, based on eyewitnesses, was that uh, a carnival had come to town uh, and, and the devil himself had visited, uh, had, and had visited, in fact, with Luther's mother. And Luther's mother had sort of gone off behind the carnival tent 
and had illicit relations with the devil. And shortly thereafter, young Martin was born. Based on eyewitness accounts, this is a sort of newspaper-type piece that was published. That's the kind of thing that, that Cochleus did. He just followed Luther around, putting these little stories in the press and coming up with, uh, with ways to just annoy and irritate and attack Luther and undermine his, his reputation. Uh, another, he, he began preparing a kind of Jesus seminar version of, of Luther. I don't know if any of you know the Jesus seminar. At one point, this group of people tried to color code Jesus' statements from the New Testament, trying to determine which they thought was the most authentic, which was most harmful, or which was more true. Um, in any case, Cockley has put together um, a color-coded version of Luther's works, uh, color-coding them. What, you know, black is the worst possible heresy. Sort of blue and red were dangerous, uh, certainly sinful, uh, but maybe not as toxic as the red. This is the kind of thing that, that Cochleus would do as well. Cochleus later on turned his attention on Kelvin, and that's a whole other story that we can take up. Uh, they sent him off to, to the uh, environs around Geneva for a while to make Kelvin's life miserable. Um, well, what kind of things did Cochleus come up with? Uh, the Protestants are publishing the Christ and the Antichrist, and Cochleus comes up with, with a few caricatures of Luther. That is the devil playing Luther's head like a bagpipe, right? <laughs> Which admittedly is kind of entertaining, um, right? Who's playing Luther? The devil. The devil's playing Luther like an instrument is, is the point of it. Um, there's another one here. Ah, Luther, the seven-headed monster. There we are, blown up the seven heads. Why seven heads? Yeah, right. The devil that the whore of Babylon is riding on is a seven-headed dragon, right? So Luther is here with his seven heads. Um, doctor, he's, he's a scholar here. Um, he's Martin, brother, a monk. It's hard to tell. It's a little blurry. Luther, he's a German. He's got a beard, just like German nobility. Ecclesiast, he's a priest. Uh, what are these? Bees swarming his head. Remember, the swarmers? The, he's, he's a radical. He's a swarmer, a schwärmer, with bees buzzing around his head. This one, uh, I've never quite figured out this one. Um, visitor. Is, is what it means, and he's got a goofy hat on. I have no idea. Maybe some, if any of you know, let me know afterwards. And then last, Sergeant Schultz. That's good, John. That's good. Uh, yeah, it does kind of look like I'm trying to click my heels together. But, um, and, and Barabbas, which isn't actually, I mean, he's kind of a wild man, but he's, you can tell it's also Barabbas because he's got a, a spiked club, meaning he's... Uh, He's a political revolutionary, right? Someone who's dangerous, an insurrectionist. Barabbas is, is, is given leniency, even though he's a, an insurrectionist right at the end. So this is the kind of propaganda, theologically uh, engaged propaganda that Rome spills back uh, in, in Luther's direction, the seven heads of Martin Luther. 
Um, I have to go back. One, one interesting thing about this is Luther's holding a, an open Bible. There's a caption that's cut off. That you can't see, but he's reading one book but produces at least seven different opinions on what it means. That's the Catholic attack on sola scriptura, right? That's the, the, the perceived weakness, according to Rome, of sola scriptura. If you just turn the Bible over to the people, you'll get seven different interpretations of what the passage means. What you should do is just let the Pope tell us what it means, right? That's, that's part of the propaganda, too. Well, uh, this is a tit-for-tat culture. So you hit it, Brother Martin, and, uh, and Lucas Cranach is going to hit back. Here is the seven-headed papal beast responding. It even has a similar kind of structure, right? This is the papal beast. It's all one sort of, it's like Jabba the Hutt kind of thing, right? One, <laughs> one body with multiple heads. The heads are, are priests and bishops and cardinals. The pope with the three-layered tiara is at the top. It's kind of interesting as they have coats of arms tucked into the hands of the various uh, cardinals, indicating the mixing and merging of spiritual and temporal authorities, right? It's a kind of um, corrupted head on top of this monster, also seven heads again. And, and I think the most interesting thing about it is, is, what, is what is the papal beast sitting on? What does it look like? A, some, a treasure chest? Yeah, and it's sitting on top of an indulgence chest, right? The seven-headed monster is a peddler of indulgences. In fact, it's part of his body. This beast is sort of part cash box, uh, part, part devil. Um, that's from, from Lucas Cranach. Well, that's how these things, um, that's how these things went. For about 10 years, the Reformation uh, was waged as a kind of pamphlet war, hitting back and forth. Protestants um, offering catechesis instruction, but then also offering attacks in the papacy, criticisms of corrupt cardinals, uh, and so forth. And Rome responding by attacking Luther as a seven-headed monster or, or a head that's sort of being played by the devil. Uh, back and forth they go. Now, what's also interesting is that uh, Protestants, you'll be happy to know, um, Lutherans produced some positive uh, propaganda art that actually has a kind of constructive message. Um, there's a positive side. Now, this one is sort of part, well, it's, it's heuristic, you might say. It, it teaches something. It's a little... It's a little uh, critical, and, and it has a positive message in it as well. That's Leo X, the Pope, with the papal tiara, being propped up by who? Being propped up by the clergy. What's wrong with his key? The key to the kingdom that the Pope holds is broken, right? It's sort of crumbling and falling apart. The claim of authority that he, he's claiming is 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 collapsing about him. In fact, his, if this were moving, you might almost imagine that his little uh, papal throne there is sort of tottering back and forth, and that's why they're, they're holding him up. There's a couple of beasts 
devilish, demonic-type creatures behind there. What's also kind of interesting about, about Rome is that the Roman side here, they're, they're all armed, right? They have torches and swords. They're armed with holy relics. That's a skull, probably, of some uh, dead saint. It's a busy side over here versus the Protestant side. DML, Dr. Martin Luther. Now, he's not alone, but he's certainly singled out. And what's he doing? They've got, they're armed with all of this junk. And Luther just has the open, the open scriptures. Uh, he's not geared up in priest's robes and cardinal's gear. They all look the same. It's like Dr. Clark said uh, a week or two ago when he was here. With the black robe, just interchangeable heads, right? Like little bobbleheads. You could change these heads out for anyone else. But what they're wearing are uh, academic robes, indicating that they're, they're students of Scripture, students uh, of the Word. Looks, Reverend Brown may be back there. He's one of the students of Scripture, right? And if he ever leaves us, we'll, just, we'll get another robe with another student of the Word. Uh, in his place. That was a great line by Dr. Clark. I loved it. So that's, right, so you have students of Scripture uh, against Leo and, and Rome. How about another one? Uh, how do you find a true church? This is Lucas Cranach. Again, straight down the middle, the picture's divided on the right. You can tell by the eyeball, this is a beast of some kind, flames. You get, the, you get the picture. In the open mouth of hell is the Church of Rome. Monks, relics, etc. How do you find a true church? Luther says you point, you look, you look to Christ. What's on the Protestant side? Word, sacraments, all about the crucified lamb with the banner of salvation, and, and people gathered around, young, old, to hear the word. That's how you find a, a true church. Uh, you look for the word and sacraments where, they're, where the word is preached faithfully and the sacraments administered. Uh, maybe just one more here. You know what I love about this one? Now, I was looking at this one this morning and, and thinking, I've got to remember to say something about this. What I love about, so there's, in, in the, both the previous ones, there's a kind of implied criticism of Rome. Not implied, it's pretty strongly there. But there's also a constructive message about how to find a true church, right? Um, what I love about this one is this is just almost, it's entirely positive. There's nothing about Rome here. It's, it has only a positive message. Uh, some of you are sure are, are art fans and, and, and enjoy looking at art, interpreting art. What, what comes to your mind when you look at this? A mixed audience of young and old, uh, poor and rich, right? All mixed together, sitting. Humbly on little, on little, little stools, right to hear the word. 
Well, when I look at this, that's, that's, that's a really, uh, I think, helpful observation. When I look at this, the first thing I notice is all of this white space, right? When you look at images of Rome, they're just busy. There's a lot going on. And here you have essentially you know, the, the unadorned word. You have, this is one of the reasons why iconoclasm went on in churches. You stripped the altars bare, you cleaned up the church in order to create a kind of white space, a plain space for, for the pulpit to stand out, for the preaching of the word to be the central feature. And of course, uh, the preacher proclaims the message uh, of the gospel of our Lord. So it's all this white space simplifying uh, what, what church is about, word and sacrament. Uh, yeah. Well, they're, they're Lutheran, I know, you're right. And so if we were, we were going to fix this, we would <laughs> go like that, right? Um, now, now, part of it is that Lutherans just didn't, don't have a, a problem with the image of Christ because I think they misunderstand the second commandment. But part of it also is simply our Cranach trying to portray something uh, in an image uh, that's hard to portray. Namely, if you, if you didn't have the crucifix there, you, just, you have a man preaching in a pulpit, but to make it more explicit, what is he preaching? Because that's the crucial thing. It's not just to have a pulpit and have a man standing in it every Lord's Day. It has to be the word of Christ that they're proclaiming. So to make that more explicit, that's, I think, the other reason why, why it's there. Um, one thing you could say almost generationally is that by the time Calvin and the Reform tradition really starts growing and thriving, uh, the printing press has been around for another 50 years. Uh, levels of literacy have increased, and so maybe using images as kind of catechetical tools isn't as important. In fact, that's stated in our Belgic Confession, that we ought not to use in preaching and in the scriptures uh, images to help, to help teach us. So part of it is a generational thing. This is the first engagement uh, with the word in an earlier generation when literacy levels were low, etc. So that's maybe another reason why. Well, there, uh, uh, that's part of the, the positive um, message that comes out of this po Protestant propaganda. I call it propaganda. Propaganda could be a, you know, kind of a dirty word, but it doesn't have to be. Um, they're theologically instructional images, I think. Um, that's the last image that I have, so I'm going to turn this off. And now we need to try to land, uh, land this plane here somewhere. We've come a long way uh, since February, or whenever we began. Uh, we looked at some theological issues along the way, uh, but primarily we were tasked with trying to understand the Reformation sort of in its political, social context, uh, following on from the Sunday School series we had in the fall on Christianity and culture. What were the politics of the Reformation like? And we went all the way back to the early church. We looked at uh, the persecution of early Christians, martyrdom, and, and the opposition that the church took towards, uh, towards the state. The state was the persecutor, 
And so uh, the church set itself up uh, over against um, in protection uh, from, from the state. But then Constantine and a lot of those things we talked about in the Middle, Middle Ages, the birth and rise of Christendom, slowly the relationship between church and state uh, or, or the church and the government began to creep closer and closer together and then even merge in some respects. And then slowly they backed out again. There were conflicts in the late medieval period um, over who has the right to call a council, the pope or the emperor. So there have been sort of an ebb and flow, waxing and waning of the church-state relations right up into the time of the Reformation. The, the empire that Charles V inherited was a complicated sort of machine. But primarily, there were still two actors. There was the church represented by the Pope in Rome, and, and there was the emperor. The Reformation complicated things even further because a major reform movement within the church uh, began to have the support of the, the middle of the pyramid, so to speak. Right? We drew society was something like a pyramid with the emperor at the top, and then there's the nobility upper and lower nobility and the peasants. Well, the Reformation, the move to reform the church, became a popular movement in the middle of the pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid. So now it's not just the pope and the emperor struggling for authority and control. There are all the rest of the people who are also trying to, uh, to influence the direction of the church and politics. So things become a lot more complicated. And that's what brought us where we started this Sunday School series, uh, that's what brought us to Worms. The Pope's attempt to silence Luther and make the Reformation uh, a debate about the Pope's absolute, unquestioned uh, authority. You can't disagree with the Pope. Silence, Brother Martin, is what the Pope says. And he excommunicates uh, Luther. And the German... Uh, uh, nobility initially go along, and Luther's, Luther's banned, at least in the empire, right? He's found criminal uh, to be a criminal within, within the empire. And then there's a stalemate. Will the middle of the pyramid, the German nobility, enforce the ban on Luther or not? So we can pose a question to sort of end here. How do you get from a reform movement within the church in the 1520s to an established Protestant church by the 1530s, within the space of 10 years. Well, a lot of propaganda pieces, a lot of Protestant literature, a lot of catechisms, the New Testament in German, those are all maybe the first explanations for how the church grows and begins to thrive. Um, but since we've been looking at politics, I thought I'd try to say something about how we get from this early reform movement to an established Protestant church by, by the 1530s. The short version is uh, Luther's under the ban. He's a criminal in the empire. Rome wants to, uh, he's already excommunicated. They want to capture him and kill him uh, like they do uh, all heretics. But at various points, we talked about the complicated empire that Charles V uh, uh, ruled over. Namely, the threat from the east with the Turkish Empire, the challenge that the empire always had with 
the king of France, who wanted to take over and claim the kingdom of Naples, the papacy itself, who on occasions challenged the emperor. And because of all those complicating factors, the emperor and the, and the church were never able fully to agree to impose the ban, to capture Luther and kill him and end the reform of the church. On numerous occasions, they met in imperial diets, two of them in the city of Speyer in Germany, 1526, 1527. Uh, imperial diets meeting to try to decide, are we going to enforce the ban on Luther and capture him and kill him and put an end to this? And on both occasions, Rome and uh, those in the empire loyal to Rome argued to enforce the ban unsuccessfully. In each case, they wound up with, with a stalemate. Um, in 1526, some of Luther's friends, some of those knights uh, and noblemen like Frederick the Wise, uh, Philip of Hesse be another one, um, formally began to organize a military defense league, a sort of Protestant army as a deterrent against, uh, against the emperor. In fact, they even had a, uh, a little not a slogan or a motto, what do you call it, a, uh, a, a logo. V-D-M-A. That was the logo. Have any of you ever seen this on, on uh, Lutheran? Uh, it's like a Lutheran insurance company that has this as, like, as their logo. V-D-M-A. Verbi uh, Domini, what is it? Manet and Eternum. The word of the Lord endures forever from 1526. This is what they put on their shields uh, when they went to meet the emperor to try to negotiate with him. Well, 1526, they couldn't reach agreement, stalemate. The ban wasn't enforced on Luther. Luther continued to teach and preach. They meet again in 1529. 1529 in Speyer, uh, uh, those loyal to Rome seem to have the upper hand going into the diet. There's a good chance that Luther is going to be put under the ban. But the Military Defense League, under Philip of Hesse, uh, formally filed a protest, a sort of legal document within the empire. And that's the first time that the word protest was used. That's where we get the word Protestant. Protestant comes from Speyer in 1529, when the ban on Luther is about to be enforced. And under the military leadership of Philip of Hesse, this Defense League officially files a, a protest, saying we will... We will uh, respond only with civic disobedience. We will not enforce the ban on Luther. And because, once again, the Turkish threat uh, is there, the emperor backs down and doesn't impose the ban from 1529. But they agree, 1530, the big date that you should all know, they agree the next year to meet in the city of Augsburg to try to find out, to try to once and for all decide what to do with this reform movement, these protesters from, from Speyer in 1529. Luther, once again, grows a beard, goes into uh, costume, into disguise, and doesn't go to Augsburg. He goes near Augsburg, but he hides out in a castle again, the Coburg Castle. And Philip Melanchthon goes on his behalf uh, to the city of Augsburg, and they present a confession of faith. Uh, the Augsburg Confession of 1530. The emperor's there, he reads it, and he decides, enough. 
If you subscribe to the Augsburg Confession, you'll be tolerated within, within the empire. And officially, Protestantism is established from 1530. And they decide in order to best rule over this empire that now has different religious loyalties, some subscribing to the Augsburg Confession and some still loyal to the Pope in Rome, the best policy going forward uh, is captured in this phrase that they published at the time. To each region, its own religion. That's the phrase. Quius regio, eius religio. To each region, its own religion. Meaning, if you are in charge of a county or a village, you decide the religious faith of, of your region. Each ruler has the authority to decide within his own local sphere what region will be, uh, uh, will be tolerated and, in fact, promoted. And if you don't have that religion, you need to leave. So this is not a separation of church and state, but it's a kind of toleration of religious differences uh, within the empire. So uh, Heidelberg, within 25 years, switches from subscribing to the Augsburg Confession to producing a new confession or a catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, to describe what, what they believe. Uh, and confessions begin to multiply from, from the 1530s. That's how the Reformation goes from an early reform movement to an official, tolerated uh, 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 church within the empire. 1526, 29, and 1530. And it's especially the Augsburg Confession that is a kind of uniting document for, for Protestants. Yeah. Yeah, please. Did you have a question? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, before 1530, Luther couldn't go to the, Augs to the city of Augsburg because Augsburg wasn't in Saxony. Frederick the Wise was his ruler who protected him over Saxony. But Augsburg's in a different region, so Luther couldn't go there safely or he would have been captured and, and, and killed and executed because he was under an imperial ban. So the difference between being tolerated uh, or between sort of Luther for life before Augsburg in 1530 and after is now there's no imperial ban on Luther's life or anyone who has Luther's sensibility uh, and sympathies theologically. If you stand up and say, I believe what the Augsburg Confession uh, outlines, you're safe within the empire. You can't be found to be a heretic um, or, or a criminal the empire. So you were, you were tolerated, you were safe, essentially. Now, if you didn't believe the Augsburg Confession, nor were you loyal to Rome, there was a big problem, which raises real questions about what happens if you are uh, reformed. Well, there wasn't a reform movement yet in 1530, right? Calvin doesn't arrive in, in Geneva until 1536. In 1534, four years after Augsburg, Calvin uh, arrives in, in the city of Basel and begins working on this little catechism explanation of the Christian faith that will become the institutes of the Christian religion. But until he writes that, and until the Reformed movement 10 years later becomes officially recognized, 
Protestants had to subscribe to the Augsburg Confession of 1530. That's, that was the only confession of faith, uniting Protestants. Uh, now there's a very complicated story for why uh, Lutherans came later to fight over the Augsburg Confession, and since we only have two or three minutes left, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't go into that. But that's how the, uh, that's how the, the church uh, is established and settled and tolerated. Angela? Oh, sure. You know, the, the other complicating story is, okay, I mentioned this military defense league. The Schmalkaldic League is what it was named. Um, these were the, the glory days, the Reformation, when you could, like, be a knight and, and uh, join a military defense league to fight against the pope. Um, I'm, I'm half-joking. <laughs> uh, the Schmalkaldic League of German Princes was formed, uh, and Lutheranism, the subscribers of the Augsburg Confession, were tolerated from 1530 until, uh, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily know it. You know, what, what year does Luther die? 1546. Luther dies in 1546. By sheer force of personality, the emperor doesn't attack the Schmalkaldic League. The next year after Luther's death, 1547, the emperor raises his army and comes in and absolutely decimates the Schmalkaldic League. So in 1547, we're right back to where we were in 1521. This each region, its own religion, the Augsburg Confession, no deal. 1547, Protestants are under threat. And a lot of them actually leave and go to England. And the English Reformation gets a major boost. So some of our Italian reformers, Peter Martyr Vermeule, leaves and goes to England. Martin Bunzer from Strasbourg leaves and goes to England and becomes the Regis Professor of Divinity uh, at, at Cambridge. A major uh, emigration of, of Protestant theologians from Europe. To, to help out the English Reformation. But it happens in 1547 because the Schmalkaldic League is destroyed and because it's dangerous to be a Protestant. Well, what happens then? In 1547, Philip Melanchthon, who's the leader after Luther's death, makes a deal with the emperor and with the pope to reintroduce Roman Catholic liturgy Roman Catholic piety and practices back into Protestant churches in Germany. The deal that Luther made, that Melanchthon makes, is as long as you let us believe in justification by faith alone and our understanding of the Lord's Supper, everything else related to the life of the church is adiaphora, a thing indifferent. The full reintroduction of Roman piety and liturgy and everything back into the church in 15, 1548. It's called the Augsburg Interim under Melanchthon. Uh, that is the second main reason why Melanchthon becomes absolutely hated and despised within conservative Lutheranism. So Lutheranism splits in 1548. The fracture 
It's like an earthquake fracture. It had begun cracking in 1540, but in 1548, Lutheranism splits into two, two groups. Genesio Lutherans and Philippists. Well, you can guess who are the followers of Philip Melanchthon. The people who supported that deal in 1548 were, became known as Philippists. The people who began to think the, that Melanchthon was the biggest traitor to the Reformation are called Genesio, or authentic Lutherans. Right? That's what Genesio means. It means original uh, or, or authentic Lutherans. And a lot of these Genesio Lutherans are persecuted. Um, and, and the story goes on from there. We, we, we can have to do the whole rest of Lutheranism if we, if we don't stop. Uh, these two groups fight bitterly. I mean, bitter, bitter fights within Lutheranism until 1580 when they agree to make, make peace with each other and write the Book of Concord, the formula of Concord, the formula of agreement, reuniting the Genesio Lutherans and the Philippists. But for a variety of reasons, uh, the deal that the Genesio Lutherans and the Philippists make uh, to reunite leaves the Reformed sort of off to the side. They make some theological decisions that will make it almost impossible for there to ever be a Reformed Lutheran agreement within Protestantism again. Because we come to degree, disagree over the Lord's Supper and over the freedom of the will and, and the bondage uh, that we have to sin. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, thanks, it's been fun, and uh, we'll have all the kids sing for us next week. Um, I thought it'd be, it would maybe be fun, appropriate, to uh, close with a prayer from, from Luther, actually. So let's bow our heads in prayer. This is one of Luther's prayers. Father of all mercies, give us wisdom and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us more and more assurance in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to know that the, the same power at work in our Lord's resurrection is at work in us, to give us faith and trust in your word. Help us to remain firm in this confession, we pray. Grant that in this life, our crosses to bear and our sufferings will be as light yokes as we look with steadfast hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for whom we daily wait and in whose name we pray. Amen.